you want to grab your Bibles, you can open up to Acts 19. Acts 19 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. And if you're using the seat back Bibles, you're looking for page 928, 928 uh, in the seat back Bibles there. And then uh, and you should be right around Acts 19. So we haven't been in Acts in a long time. But as you're turning there, I would like to thank um, just everybody. Uh, you know, 2022 we started to really get our feet back up under us after the last couple of years of uh, oddness. And uh, I just want to thank everybody who has served and given and participated and been part of this church over the last year. Um, so many people, the hospitality team, community group leaders, the band, um, the audio team, Grace Place volunteers, uh, just so many different people. When we've gone out and done service projects, praying for Roscoe Village, uh, giving even financially so that we can continue to pay salaries and have the lights on and, and continue to do these things. So many people uh, make this place happen. And so thank you. Thank you for being uh, a people who love this church and love this community and want to be invested and involved. Thank you very much. Um, so Acts 19 is where we're going to be this morning. Like I said, we, so we spent the bulk of 2022 looking at the book of Acts. It's long and so we only got through 18 chapters, but we did that in like seven and a half months, which is actually not bad, but we haven't been in Acts since November. So um, we're going to jump back in this morning and kind of work our way through until we get done. Uh, this morning's passage, we see two groups of people. One of them is missing something, is lacking a life-changing, life-altering element, and they don't even realize it. As far as they know, they are in every way fine, good, and in right standing with God. They don't realize that what they are missing is the cornerstone of everything. The second group that we're going to see this morning knows that it is missing, knows that it is lacking this life-changing, life-altering element, and yet they pretend as if they aren't. They go along trying to invoke a power and authority that they don't have because they lack the, the necessary relationship. These two groups are very different from each other, but the thing that connects them is the thing that they lack, is the thing that they don't have. A faith and trust and hope in the name above every other name, the Son of God who came to earth to pay the penalty for our sins in our place. They don't have faith in Jesus. You know, when I speak to somebody who isn't a Christian or someone who is wrestling and questioning and, and doubting, Usually pretty early on in the conversation, I try, to, I try to ask them, what do you think, what do you believe about Jesus? Because ultimately, all the other stuff, the stuff that people believe about like church or organized religion or baptism or whatever their hang-up is in regards to Christianity, those things can be dealt with. But the more important than any of that is what do you believe about Jesus? about who he is, about what he did while he was on earth, about what his role is now and into eternity. That's the most important thing for someone to get a handle on. Peter says it best in Acts 4. He says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. As we're going to see this morning, without him we are lost and helpless and hopeless, but with him we are found and there is grace and mercy to be had. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Acts 19. So please bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and for this opportunity to gather and to worship you and celebrate you. And 
even just being together, God, we thank you that you are a God of relationships, the God of relationships, that you care about us not having to go through life alone, but getting to do this together. You're so, you care so much about relationships, you want to have a relationship with us. You reach out to us. You sent your son to die for us. You make a way. You gave us your word. You make a way where there was no way for us to be able to engage with you. God, as we open up the word this morning, you have something for us. You have a reason for us to be here today. There are no accidents. There are no coincidences. So today is your day. Today you have something you want to say to us, something you want to do in our hearts. God, I pray that we would be quiet enough to hear it and we would be wise enough to respond to it. God, we pray for Grace Place, for our kids, that they are, as they study your word, as they learn, as they sing, as they memorize scripture, that you would continue to reveal yourself to them, that you would work through the leaders of Grace Place to give them an extra dose of, of patience, give them an extra dose of excitement and joy as they teach and they dance and they have fun with the kids upstairs and they reflect your love to them, Lord, that the kids of this church might come to know you in an early age and walk with you for a long, long time. God, we pray for Salem Baptist Community Church as they transition this morning from Pastor Meeks to Pastor Charlie Dates, Lord, that you would help that church in this transition as they look to the future. God, we thank you for the work that they have done throughout the city, the the light that they have been in this city, the hope and help that they have been to the city. And I pray that as they move forward, they continue to raise up leaders, continue to be a voice for the voiceless and continue to serve and love your city that you have given to us. God, help us as a church, as a community to continue to bind together, to strengthen one another, to continue to be these living stones you have made us to be, resting on one another, holding one another up, walking together through this life. We thank you for this place and these people that you have put together that we get to call a family. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Acts 19. I'm going to read a section and then we'll go back and talk about it. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come, and after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came to them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirit came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 
Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. We'll stop there for this morning. So before we fully jump into Acts 19, like I said, it's been a while. We haven't been in this book since November. Uh, so just in case, I want to catch us up a little bit onto where we are in Acts 19. So Jesus dies. Yeah, we're going to go back that far. Jesus dies on a cross. He's buried. For three days, he's dead. And then he rises from the dead. He is risen, risen indeed. He spends some time with his followers, and before ascending into heaven, he tells them, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then he ascends into heaven. Afterward, his disciples kind of have to gather and say, well, now what do we do? That's kind of been the unofficial title of this sermon series. Now what? How do we figure this out? How do we live this life? How do we do this? How do we live like Jesus is still here teaching us and guiding us even though he is gone? How do we go on from here? Now what do we do? And so they begin to share the gospel in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit shows up. Hundreds, even thousands, are hearing the gospel, believing and following Jesus. How are the apostles going to manage this? Now what are we going to do? This is too big for us to be able to manage and oversee. And so what they do is they start to appoint deacons, those who can handle the day-to-day -day operations of the church. The Gentiles are going to be welcomed eventually into the family of God. We have former Jews and former pagan worshipers coming together, trying to build this relationship, trying to build this community. Now what are we going to do? Now what's going to happen? And the church is going to wrestle and struggle with how to get along and work these things out for some time. And over that time, there will be men who will rise up to lead them. Men like Paul, who was once actively trying to destroy the church, who saw these Christians as enemies. He meets Jesus and is now traveling around and planting churches. He goes on three missionary trips. The first one's kind of by accident. He's in a town preaching about Jesus. They run him out of town, and they kind of just chase him from town to town. And as he is escaping their death threats, he's planting churches along the way. The second missionary trip is he has some time to rest and he says, we should go back and check on all those churches, check on those Christians, because I didn't get a whole lot of time with them and I want to build them up. And so he goes back and kind of recircles and encourages those churches. The third trip, which he's in the midst of here in Acts 19, is a similar reason. He wants to encourage and strengthen the Christians. But he's not the only one. There are men like Apollos who are also sharing the gospel and preaching and teaching in places like Ephesus a city known for its magicians, its sorcery, its demonic cult pursuits. When we last studied Acts, Apollos was regarded as a charismatic, fervent teacher of the, law, uh, of the word. But his teaching lacked some depth. It was missing some details about the kingdom of God. It was missing some details about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so eventually Apollos is helped out by a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They instruct him in the fullness of the gospel of what he was missing. He leaves Ephesus, he heads to Corinth, which is a whole other horrible city to go to, and now Paul shows up in Ephesus in his place. At this point in Acts 19, 
Acts 19 happens roughly around A.D. 50 to 55, somewhere in that range. So we are like 20 to 25 years away from Jesus' death and resurrection. In the Gospels, there's that scene where Jesus tells his disciples, don't keep the children from me, right? Jesus welcomes the children, and he takes them up in, their ar- in his arms, and he blesses them. Those kids are grown adults at this point. The church has been going on for 20 to 25 years. There are some who are raised in Christianity. The Christianity is not this offset weird thing for them. At this point, there are kids growing up in the church. There are church kids of Christianity who know it as the primary culture of which they are raised. See, things are changing. The people are changing. But through it all, the gospel message continues. And so Paul shows up in Ephesus. He had been here once before briefly, but now he returns and he's going to have an extended stay. And he finds some disciples, it says in verse 1. Luke, our author, calls this group of 12 men disciples. And he gives us no caveat, no descriptor concerning them. Some would argue, based on this interaction between Paul and these men, that they aren't Christians. But then why would Luke call them disciples? It would seem that this group knew enough of, to be followers of Jesus, but they didn't have a full and complete picture and understanding of the work of Jesus. They were missing something. Pastor Alistair Begg, when he preached on this, he referred to them as almost Christians. We already talked about how there was a similar situation with Apollos, right? Apollos was teaching, and he wasn't teaching something inappropriate. Just what he was teaching was kind of lacking some, it was missing some details. It was missing and incomplete before Priscilla and Aquila engaged with him. So it's possible that this group of 12 heard some of what Apollos had to share, some of that partial teaching, before he had the chance to really fully um, fill out what he was teaching. Whatever the case, Paul had reason to question these men. We have no other similar situation like this in the book of Acts where a person's Christianness gets called into question. It means that there was something observable that this group was lacking. There was some observable element in the life of the Christian that they were missing, which means there is an observable element to the Christian life which can be seen. Jesus says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Matthew 7, Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, and and neither can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. We talked about last week about bearing fruit. Loving and serving and giving of ourselves for others. These are the marks, the identifiers, the reality of the Christian who has been made new in Christ. Something about this group of men that Paul interacts with, something about how they spoke or how they thought or carried themselves, there was something that led Paul to ask them this question in verse 2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? The question The presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives is the quintessential element of being a Christian. Paul will later write in Romans 8, 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God 
the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And later on in Romans 8, 16, he'll say, The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Years later, when Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, in theory, some of these men being there to receive this letter, Paul will say in Ephesians 1.13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. To summarize, to be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit. I don't tend to work in absolutes, but this one's an absolute. You cannot be a Christian if you do not have the Holy Spirit. So now some of you might hear that, and your next question is, how do I know if I have the Holy Spirit? You have the Holy Spirit if you are a Christian. I know, it seems loopy. If you have been born again is the phrasing that would be used in Scripture. You see, on our own, without Christ, without Jesus, our default setting and wiring in our hearts and minds is rebellion against God. We are born with sin. Human human nature is not good. People, by nature, are not good, but are wicked. Because of this, without Jesus, we we need help. Without Christ, without a Savior, we are in trouble. We are, as Paul will write in Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sins, following Satan's leading, doing whatever we want, and because of that, children of God's wrath towards sin. Even for the person who was saved at a young age, like if you're one of those people who grew up in church, you don't have a memory of not being a Christian, even you, one of those people who didn't really have a chance to fully explore the sinful desires of your heart. Still, you, before Christ, were dead, follower of Satan, object of God's wrath. This is who we are on our own. This is our default, out-of-the-box wiring, and that's not a great place to be. But then for some of us, this thing happened. That day happened. The Holy Spirit did something. He revealed something. He revealed the truth and reality of the gospel. It broke through. Maybe it happened the first time you heard the gospel. Maybe it took a hundred or two hundred different times of hearing it, but something changed. You heard and believed the good news that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for your sins and rose again, displaying his absolute power over all existence so that there is now forgiveness and new life here, now, and in eternity. The Holy Spirit, apart from anything that you did, the only thing that we did in regards to our salvation is add the sin that needed it. The Holy Spirit, apart from anything that we could do, that we have done, that we could possibly think about doing, took the dead and made it alive. He took the follower of Satan and and redirected your steps toward God, took the desires of your heart and changed them, took you from being a child of God's wrath and made you a child of God's mercy, grace, forgiveness, and love. The message of the gospel, the reality of the gospel, became for you this beautiful, sweet, and precious thing. 
Instead of being driven by your own carnal desires and thoughts, you, your love and gratitude toward God drives you to worship and obey him. Instead of trying to work, win, and earn your way into some kind of cosmic fortune where you think that you have God in checkmate and so he has to let you into heaven, you can now trust, rest, dwell, and abide in the truth of God's words and promises for you. Above all and beyond all, though you don't do it perfectly, the desire of your heart is to glorify and honor God. If that is true of you, that is how you know you have the Holy Spirit. Because you have been transformed from one mind to another. You understand the utter hopelessness and helplessness you were in before, and that realization that apart from the Spirit's work in you, there was no way you could possibly see these things happen. You could know possibly, there was no possible way that these changes could have happened outside of the Holy Spirit working in you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But to all who did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Is Jesus the absolute treasure of your heart? Is a desire to glorify, celebrate, obey, and enjoy him the driving factor of your life? If yes, you have the Holy Spirit. If not, you do not have the Holy Spirit. You are not saved. But today, right now, that can change. If you would admit your need for a savior, admit and realize that you can't do this on your own, that you need help and believe that Jesus, God in the flesh, died for your sins, that you would choose him to be not only your savior, but your Lord, your king, the one who leads and guides and shepherds you along. If you will admit and believe and choose him, there is salvation, there is hope, there is forgiveness waiting for you even here now this morning. It is that simple of a decision and it is the most important decision you can make. And if you make that decision today, if you came in here this morning and you had questions and doubts, but today is that day that the Holy Spirit has revealed this truth to you, let me know. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to walk along with you in this. If you want to use that connect card we talked about earlier, and, or just come tell me after the service, I would love to have that conversation and help you understand what it is that the Holy Spirit's doing in you right now. That's a long excursion away from our story in Acts, but I think it's a vital one. Paul asked this great question in verse 2. He asks about the Holy Spirit, and this group replies, we don't know anything about the Holy Spirit in this regard. They knew of the Holy Spirit. He's talked about in the Old Testament this idea of the Spirit of God descending on certain people or showing up in the midst of certain people. John himself preached about it, so it's not that they knew nothing of the Holy Spirit, but rather, in regards to this, in regards to salvation, in regards to what comes next, they had no idea what Paul was talking about. So then, Paul pushes further. He says, into what then were you baptized? At this point in Christian history, it was, a, it was highly irregular for a person to identify as a Christian without being baptized. Too often, we put this large gap between getting saved and getting baptized. It, over time, we've treated it as this like nice add-on. If you happen to get around to getting baptized, it's a good idea. I had that issue in my own life. I was saved at a very early age. I didn't get baptized until like 10, 15 years later. I think we do a disservice to people as the church to not stress the importance of baptism in response to salvation. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, why? What are you waiting for? 
We got a baptismal right here. We can do it next Sunday. It takes a while to fill out. I mean, we could do it today if you want to hang out. I got nothing to do. We're taking down Christmas decorations. We could do it today. Baptism doesn't save you. But it is an important part of our response to our, the salvation that God has given us. For Paul, the idea of someone being a follower of Jesus and not being baptized, that doesn't even come into his head. He says, okay, you claim to be disciples. You have some of the lingo down. You have something there. So what baptism did you have? Paul finds that these men have been received John's baptism, but nothing beyond that. When he talks about John's baptism, he's talking about John the Baptist, John the baptizer, the one who went before Jesus. His role and calling was to prepare the way, prepare the hearts and minds of the people for the coming of Jesus into the world, for the coming of Jesus' ministry. His baptism was one of preparation. If it was looking ahead to what Jesus was coming to do. He preached the message, repent and be baptized. He said, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. To hold on to John's baptism, while it was good because it called people to repent of their sins, it was lacking in its scope and understanding due to when it happened in the timeline. The ministry and work of John came before Jesus. It made the way. It set the path. So to cling to it is to cling to something outdated. Right? When you're a teenager, when you're 14, 15, you can go to driver's ed. You start taking a class and you start doing the simulators and you get that little card, that, that learner's permit. Right? It's that card that says, I'm learning. I'm getting ready for that day. I'm getting ready for that test. I'm not quite there yet, but I'm, I'm on my way. I'm getting my experience. And then that day comes where you get to go to the DMV. Who doesn't love a good trip to the DMV? And you stand in line and you take the test and you go do the road test and you pass. And you get to take the picture and you get your driver's license. And it's a great, awesome day and you feel like you got freedom. And then inevitably, like three weeks later, you get pulled over. Now when the police officer comes and asks for your driver's license... You wouldn't show them your permit, your learner's permit. Why? Because the learner's permit is outdated. It was good, it was fine, but it wasn't an accurate, at that point, it's not an accurate description of who you are. You have the ability, you passed the test, you have the license. So why would you cling to something outdated? Why would you say, see, I have a learner's permit, when you have a license? To cling to this old baptism, to cling to John's baptism, these guys were missing something new, something more, uh, more in tune with where they were. These, these Ephesians, by clinging to John's baptism ministry, it's kind of like the Old Testament believers. Those in the Old Testament, they were justified not by their sacrifices or adherence to the law, but in their faith and trust of the promise of God that the Messiah would come. They put their faith in the one who was to come, one who they weren't going to get to see, but they longed to see. This Messiah, this set-apart one who was going to go to war with Satan on their behalf. They put their faith in the one who was to come. Paul tells these believers in verse 4, that one who was promised, that one who was to come, the one John was pointing to, the one John was celebrating, he has already come. Christ has come. Jesus was the one John was pointing to. He is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the hope. He is God in the flesh come to do battle with sin for us on our behalf. There's no need to wait anymore. There's no need to long for the Messiah because he's already come. He's already showed up. Christ has come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. 
upon hearing that in verse 5, I love the immediacy of this reaction. Because on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They hear the truth that Christ has come, the Messiah has come. They believe and they're baptized. And after they're baptized, it says Paul lays hands on them. The Holy Spirit descends on them. They begin to speak in tongues and prophesy, speak the word of God. And we've seen through the book of Acts a few special times where the Holy Spirit shows up in special, unique ways. And he does that in certain instances for certain groups. This is not the norm, right? Speaking in tongues is not a necessity to prove your salvation. But rather, this was God saying, look, you didn't know about the Holy Spirit. There was confusion about where your faith was. Here, without a shadow of a doubt, is the realization that you have the Holy Spirit. They spoke in tongues. They spoke the word of God as a way for God to confirm in them that he was with them. It was a special instance. It was not the norm. And actually, this is the very last time in the book of Acts that we see speaking in tongues happen. But it is definitely not the last time somebody's going to get saved. It's clear to Paul that after this interaction with this group of Ephesians that there was some more intentional teaching and investment time needed. So he begins to do what he usually does, what he did, all what we've seen him do all throughout the book of Acts. He shows up in the synagogue and begins to use scripture to point people, to point the Jews toward the fact that the Messiah has come. This one that they were waiting for has already come. He uses their own word, he uses the scriptures to do what scripture does, point people to Jesus. And he does that over and over again, and eventually he gets rejected and attacked for it, and so he moves his teaching elsewhere. He continues to do this for two years, building up and instructing the people in the area, and many come to hear him preach. Many hear the gospel and are saved. The Spirit of God was clearly on the move in Ephesus, showing up in miraculous, amazing ways. Luke even says in verse 11 that extraordinary miracles were being done. Another translation says unusual miracles were being done. I mean, miracles by their nature are unusual. They are extraordinary, right? That's what makes them miracles. But what he describes here are super unusual. Luke says that Paul's handkerchiefs, literally translated his sweat rags, and his aprons were somehow healing people. This was not something Paul did. This was something God was doing and doing a work in a shocking, unique way. Right? We don't know about the first person who took cream that went sour, put it on a taco, and ate it. We thank them for their service. We don't know who that person was. My guess is, in the same vein, the first person who was healed by Paul's sweaty rag probably didn't do it on purpose. It was probably an accident, but much like the guy who ate the sour cream, they were thrilled with the result. See, remember, Acts is full of both prescriptive and descriptive. There are things that are prescribed. This is how things should go. And there are things that are described. This is what happened. It's not necessarily this is how things are supposed to happen all the time, but this is how things happen then. This one is descriptive. It is telling us of a way in which God moved in a unique, amazing set of circumstances. And he can do that because he is God, and God is going to show up how he wants, when he wants. Though I will say, next week we're going to talk more about the the city of Ephesus and what it is that was built into this culture. And my hunch is that the propensity in the city for the supernatural, for the mystical, is why God used things like sweat rags and aprons to heal people. But we'll talk about that next week. So we saw that first group in the first half of chapter 19 who were almost Christians. 
right? They were missing the Holy Spirit. They were running with faulty information. There are some who think they are Christians, but they are confused or they are missing pieces. Whether due to bad teaching or a lack of understanding, they think they can work their way to God, that somehow they have to do something to earn the love of God. That's not true. There is grace and mercy from God for the earnest person lacking correct experience, but seeking truth, there is forgiveness to be had. And it's not based on your works, it's based on what God can do and is doing. So we have those people who are confused or lacking information, but then we have this second group here. This second group that's mentioned in verse 13 and following, those who want to play Christian, those who pretend to be Christians, those who decide to invoke the name of God when it's convenient for them. Those who think that the name of God or the word of God or the house of God are just props that they can use to bolster their own appearance, reputation, ego, or power. There were, at this time, multiple groups who traveled around performing exorcisms, or at least they appeared to be performing exorcisms. Among them were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva who were trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They were using a name that to them, it could have been Matthew or David or John, it was just a name. They, they knew this name, Jesus, had power, but they didn't believe in the power source. They didn't actually believe in him. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary, says, When these brothers tried to use the name of Jesus, like an unfamiliar weapon wrongly handled, it exploded in their hands. Even this phrasing that, that Luke captures, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, even the address clearly communicates they have no relationship with Jesus, no real understanding or experiential knowledge of Jesus. And if we can tell that just from reading the text, then the demons they were dealing with definitely could understand it. And that response in verse 15 just kind of makes me giggle every time. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize. Who are you? The demons know Jesus. You read the Gospels, anytime Jesus interacts with someone who, is, uh, who is, has a demon within them, they immediately identify Jesus as the Son of God. They know who he is. And through his faith and work, this demon even knew about Paul and the work he was doing. But he also knew that these brothers had no right, no authority, no belief in the name of Jesus, and thus no actual power. And so these seven men are overpowered by the one spirit-filled man, and they are left beaten and naked, fleeing for their safety. See, of course, it doesn't matter if it's 55 AD or 2023. Something like that happens, word's going to spread. And word starts to spread of what happened to them, and people begin to realize there is power in the name of Jesus. Warren Wearsby, in his book, The Names of Jesus, says this, Great names come and go, but the name of Jesus remains. The devil still hates it, the world still opposes it, but God still blesses it, and we can still claim it. In the name of Jesus is the key that unlocks the door of prayer and the treasury of God's grace. It's the weapon that defeats the enemy and the motivation that compels our sacrifice and service. It's the name that causes our hearts to rejoice and our lips to sing his praise. For the non-believer, the name of Jesus is just another magic spell to cast in a situation. That's what they believed in Ephesus. The magic and sorcery was built into the culture of their city. But what is realized quickly is that the name of Jesus is not to be used flippantly or erroneously. 
The, serious and power of, the seriousness and power of God shows itself in Ephesus and people begin to take notice. The truth of the gospel, the true power of Christ moves and people begin to turn to Jesus in faith. They embrace the power that Christ has over sin, the power to forgive and redeem us. And we see in verses 18 and 19, people begin to meet Christ and a change happens. They want to let go of their old ways and their old lives. That change of desires, that change of heart that we talked about starts to happen. They begin to burn their books of magic and the things that tied them to this old demonic way of life. Why? Because they had an encounter where eyes were opened, hearts were softened, and the Holy Spirit spoke and convicted and transformed and made those who were dead come alive. It says in verse 20, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily in the town because the name of Jesus has power. Whether you are here this morning and you're like that first group who didn't know or hadn't heard or had questions, I pray that this morning is that morning for you. That day where you place your hope and faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Or maybe you're in that second group. Maybe you have used Jesus or Christianity as a weapon or a mask to put on when it's convenient for you. And if that's you, I pray this morning is a day of repentance, that you would truly put your faith in Christ for real, that you would actually start to live into this new life that he has granted to you. Today is a day to celebrate and rejoice and marvel and rest in the powerful name of Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He'll write later on in 1 Corinthians 6.11, But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, set your eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus himself said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John eleven twenty five. 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Paul says in Colossians 1, He is the the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, 
stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed to you in all creation under heaven. We could do this all day. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what your past holds. It doesn't matter if you are a genuine Christian, an almost Christian, a fake Christian, a non-Christian. Right now, right here, Jesus, the creator and sustainer and savior of all existence, is offering you the chance at hope and life and rest and redemption and restoration and peace. The name of Jesus, the reality of Jesus, has the power to change everything. Will you choose to let that power of Jesus into your life? I pray that you will this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for being good, for being you, for being holy and set apart and righteous. God, we thank you for... God, we thank you for when you sent your son to die for us. That though we choose our way over your way too many times, you still love us. That even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even whilst we actively rebelled against you, you made a way for us to have a right relationship with you. You made a way for us to be able to connect with you and engage with you, to go from objects of wrath to the children of God. You welcome us into your family. You know how broken and messed up we are. You know that even after we put our faith in you, we're still going to sin. We're still going to fall short. We're still going to rebel against you. And you still welcome us in and you still allow us to come to you. God, there's power in the name of Jesus. Help us to live like we believe that. To live like that actually matters. Like you actually matter, like the gospel actually matters in our lives, not theoretically, but actually affects the decisions we make, the thoughts we have, the relationships we have, the way we interact with this world that you created, that the gospel filters every interaction. God, I pray that this morning is that day for somebody, that today is that day they put their faith in you, that today is that day where things change, where their life is changed because they have, for the first time, had their eyes opened by the Holy Spirit, where they realize that there is hope and life and redemption and forgiveness in the gospel. By putting their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there is new life to be had. And God, for those of us who have walked with you for a long time, we don't do it perfectly, and we zig and we zag and we find our way into the darkness. God, let today be that day. Let January 8th be that day where we get ourselves, where we allow you to get us right with you. We allow you to convict us of our sin. That we respond to that. That we would repent of our sin, run in the opposite direction of the darkness and run into you because you have no darkness in you. You are all light. You are all good. God, let today be that day, that day we look back on and say that's when things changed. That's when things got, that's when God did a, a mighty work in me. God, as we go into this world, it is dark, it is broken, it is hard, it is exhausting, it is loud. Help us as we work on memorizing scripture, as we walk into this season of fasting and prayer. God, you have given us the tools, you have given us the resources, you have given us yourself, you have given us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to shepherd us, to protect us. Help us to listen. Help us to quiet ourselves enough to hear when you are speaking because you're always speaking and help us to be bold enough to take steps when you tell us to. 
God, you have called us and made us the lights of the world. You didn't give us an option on that one. You said, if you're a follower of me, you are the light of the world. Help us to shine our lights brightly so that others might come to know you and glorify you because you are good and holy and worthy. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.